Thank you for listening to the official podcast of Everyday Church. We are a body of believers in Oklahoma City with the mission to live out our faith on a daily basis. Let's listen in as we hear a powerful message from God's Word. I hate the dentist. And not the person, the profession. Can I get an amen? Okay, some of you are a little scared. You don't think that's holy, but it is, okay? It is all, your, your pastor telling you you can hate the profession of dentistry, all right? So uh, I, the reason that I've ended up in that place, and, and some of you maybe have family or you've even uh, been in that profession, God will forgive you. It is okay, all right? And if God can forgive, I will too. But I, I've had a couple bad experiences. I've had several bad experiences, honestly, but I can think of two immediately off the top of my head. One time it was because a, a, a dentist put a temporary crown uh, upon my tooth, waiting for the permanent crown to come, but the temporary crown would not come off when the permanent crown had arrived. And so to try and get the temporary crown off, the dentist literally took a stake and hammer and popped that puppy off using those tools. Not a fun experience, okay? So that would make me venture into the hate side. Also, I can remember very clearly as a middle, middle school student, when back in the Stone Ages, when braces are different, Kim and I, our, our boy Isaac, was it fourth grade or third grade that he got braces? Third? They're, they're like so easy now, okay? They're just little things they put on the tooth. Back in the day, right, when you had to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow with no shoes, they wrapped around the whole tooth, big metal contraption put upon each tooth, and it hurt like crazy. And I can remember as a middle school student, Rio, somewhere around your age, where I was sitting in that chair thinking, man, I know I've made some mistakes as a middle school student, God, and you are paying me back for my sins, and so I just grin and bear it, okay? God, I know that you are getting me for my mistakes. And I honestly, this isn't just like, ooh, this will be a great sermon illustration. I really was, I can remember vividly sitting in that chair, mouth wide open, thinking that, man, this really hurts, but I deserve it. (laughs) Because I'm not perfect. And God, you've just got to do this to me because of all my mistakes as a middle school student. Now, don't look at me crazy because I know you've probably had that same sentiment too. Maybe it wasn't braces. Maybe it was some other pain or trial or tribulation that came to your life. And you just thought, well, I made mistakes in my life. God's just getting me for it. Maybe you're thinking, I lost my temper, yelled at my kids. All right, God, bring the pain. Or, Or God, I didn't share enough this week with people. I had that opportunity. It was sitting right there. Jesus was even mentioned, and I bailed. God, bring the pain. Or, or, or maybe it was, I didn't pray enough, or I didn't read my Bible enough, or I did this or did that. No wonder I'm experiencing pain. I think there's been times that maybe we've all kind of felt that way, and we viewed God through that lens. And I just want to tell you today that is a faulty view of God. That is not a correct view of our heavenly Father. Now, God, of course, disciplines those whom he loves. That is in Scripture. It is true. And God can use his discipline and give his discipline however he wants to do so. It is his choice, his prerogative. But to view God as some sort of out-to-get-us authority figure is missing the truth of who our God really is. 
is. To imagine God with a red pen just waiting and eager and longing even to tear up our paper to mark our mistakes is a poor view of who he really is. And this faulty perception of God as this out-to-get-us authority figure, this mean old man ready to smite us, that view of him is going to create a faulty interpretation of his actions. Listen to me today. How you view somebody determines how you interpret their actions. Okay, How you view them, your already perception of an individual, including God, is going to determine how you interpret what they do. Let's think of someone polarizing. I don't know if there's anyone that we could think is so polarizing in our country. I mean, we're all on the same page, it seems, as of late. There's such great unity in our, our world and government even that we're just all really on the same page. I can't even think of anyone. Let's think of Donald Trump for a second, our president, okay? Before you throw stones, let's just think about how our perception Okay, how we view someone determines how we interpret their actions. If you feel like our president is just some sinful, crazy nut, all right, and that's how you view him, well, you're going to interpret everything he does through that lens. And so everything he does is going to be wrong. There's not an ounce good. He is just some sinful, crazy nut. Now, on the other hand, if you view he is just God's gift to America. He is perfect in every way then you're going to interpret all of his choices and actions through that lens if those are the only view you have a perception of him. Now, the same is true of God. Okay? How we view him is going to determine how we interpret his actions. Now, we all know God loves us. He's God. He has to. That's already leaning on this faulty person. Well, he has to. So we think, well, God loves us, but we're not so sure that he likes us. We're not so sure that he even wants to be around us. We're not so sure how he feels about us because we have this perception that he has not fully accepted us or that he is even, dare I say, against us. Now, I believe that we come up with this faulty view and perception of God because sometimes of a faulty biblical interpretation or a faulty view of Scripture, a biblical perspective that is slightly off. In the Old Testament, we'll read that, and this is before Jesus, and we'll see these passages, and we'll just say, man, God is just out to wipe out people. God, God is just there to, he's just eager and waiting for people to mess up so that he can send them down a sinkhole, that he can send a flood, that he can send fire. And we view God through that lens because that's our view of God. He's just waiting to wipe out these people. However, the real pattern in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, is that we see time after time God gave grace to his people. Time after time God gave this amazing grace to his people, desiring their hearts to turn towards him. Think about this one example. Did God give the Israelites the promised land because they were always faithful? Did he give them this incredible land filled with milk and honey that was promised to them because they just did everything right all the time? No. Victory didn't happen because of their faithfulness. It didn't happen because they did everything right and followed every rule. No. Victory happened because of God's faithfulness, not theirs. That's 
why victory happened. Because our God is a faithful God. That's who he is. We tend to get to think that backwards. We think, well, if we just mess up, a bunch of bad is coming our way. And God is just angry, ready to pounce on us when we make a mistake. But throughout scripture, what we see is a God who has unlimited grace. And he's ready to pour out this amazing grace. He's ready to unleash, open up the heavens and rain down his grace upon us. In Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed in front of Moses. This is this encounter Moses has with God. And he's calling out Yahweh, the Lord. Now it's not Moses calling it out, it's God. The God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. God says of himself, I'm slow to anger, full of loving kindness, merciful, compassionate. God is talking of himself that he is this. This is his character. Now, we know he's also holy. We also know he's just. And so that he has to deal with sin because he is a holy and just God. And so we think eventually, well, he's just going to take us out because we know we've messed up. But the answer to that is very important because it resides in the fact that God is not bound by time like we are. So when Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty and price of sin, he dealt with sins of all time, not just the sins of the present. See, Jesus dealt with all sin, the totality of sin, past, present, and future sins, not just the sins in that day. Why? Because God is not bound by time like we are. He is above time. We're linear, right? If we looked at a timeline, we, we don't see the totality of the timeline. We see in the moment. We, we're in the dot. And we see what's happening in the dot only. We can't see the whole. We kind of know what happened in the past, but our memories fade. And so we just move from dot to dot to dot, and we experience life that way. But God looks at the whole thing. He's above it all. He's not like us. And so he's not bound by linear thinking. He sees the totality of the picture. And so on the cross, God looked down on every sin of all of our lifetimes. And he saw and knew every sin we would commit, you, me, those before us, those after us. He saw the totality of sin and he dealt with it. Colossians 2 says, you were dead because of your sins. We are, apart from Christ, we're dead in our sin because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. How did we become alive with Christ? For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Okay? It's like an invoice. Paul says he canceled, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us. That's all of our sins. Now, I don't think any of us in this room were born when Jesus lived the earth. Jim was, I think, maybe, uh, I think maybe just after the ascension you were born. It was pretty close. You're close to 50 now. You told us this morning. We're, we're there. You're knocking on it, right? And so 
None of us were here, but yet Paul's saying all of our sins were dealt with, that there was this invoice, this was this record of charges, but that it was completed, it was paid for. That's why in John chapter 19, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, the Greek word tetelestai, which means it is fulfilled, the fulfillment has taken place, or it is finished, okay? The, it has been paid in full. Jesus paid for the all sin, yours, eyes, mine, all of our sin was paid for, and he declared the finished work on the cross. So when I ask you, in light of that, how many of your sins did God know you would commit before you were born? Think about it. How many sins did he know you would commit before you were born? How many of those sins did Jesus die for on the cross? How many of your sins did God forgive when you turned to him? How many of those sins were covered and are still covered by the blood? The answer to all of those questions is one word. What? All. All of your sins he knew. All of them were paid for. All of them are forgiven. All of them are covered by the blood of Jesus. It would not make any intellectual sense for God to see all of your sins and only forgive some of them. Mm, I just forgive those. Jesus, you'll have to die again Tuesday. No, they were all paid for. And so praise God, we never have to wonder, am I okay with him? Am I fully accepted by him? Did this screw up, negate this relationship that I have with him? All of our sins were paid for. Anyone who put their faith in Jesus has been forgiven. Acts 10 says, he is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Anyone who believes, your sins will be forgiven through his name. Ephesians 1 says he is so rich in kindness and grace. He's rich in grace that he purchased our freedom. How? With the blood of his son. Who's his son? Jesus. And what happened? And forgave our sins. Colossians 1.13, for he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Amen. Verse 14, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. In 1 John 2, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. Listen, if you are a Christian, God has dealt with your sin by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And we can know it. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we have it. And we don't live a life of fear, guilt, or shame. We live a life of freedom through grace. Living in shame and guilt is not of God. That's saying that his forgiveness isn't good enough or he didn't know what he was doing or he hasn't done the work. When you say, I don't know if I'm forgiven, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have been declared righteous, justified, forgiven, loved. That's grace. It's amazing. That's what makes grace so good. You cannot outsend the grace of God. You just can't. Romans 5:20, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. The law of God was given so that we could see. We can't own up to it. We can't complete it on our own. We mess up. Our flesh rises. And screws up. But as people sinned more and more, 
God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Now here's where some people cringe. Whoa, hang on there, preacher. Are, are you saying that, that we can do whatever we want then because the more we sin, the more grace abounds? No, absolutely not. Grace is more than forgiveness. See, if you only understand grace as forgiveness, you're not getting the totality of the picture because grace also empowers and teaches Christians to deny ungodliness and to help us live holy lives. Grace still has a standard, but what it leaves out is guilt. Hear me now. There is a standard with grace, but what is left out is guilt. Grace says you're free. You're free and forgiven. Now go live the life you are created to live. In freedom, in forgiveness. Go be all that Jesus wants you to be. In him. Paul answers this for us. That if, as we end Romans 5 and we go to Romans 6, the very first verse says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Like, should I just keep screwing up because if, if grace is coming because of the screw-ups, well, maybe I should just keep screwing up. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This morning... I want to be very, very clear for us. We're going to wrap up this Religion Ruins Everything series. God's grace does not mean good works are void from the life of a believer. Okay? Don't, don't mishear me. Four weeks, we've been talking about grace. I don't want you to think, oh, well, that's not important. It is important. Good works are the litmus test of a believer. Okay? They are not the test that gets you into salvation. They don't earn you anything, okay? They don't declare you've been saved, but as a believer, they show our salvation. They show that we have been saved. It lets the world around us know that we have become a new creation. Last week, I mentioned about becoming a new creation and who we are in Christ, that we're righteous. One of the things that I said is that we're God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. In Ephesians 2.10, we looked at that, that says, for we are God's workmanship. The, the Greek word is poema, which means that we are a divine poem. We are supernaturally a masterpiece, that God created us as his divine work of art. That's who you are in Jesus but the verse continues. In light of that, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, these good works that we do are the effect of our relationship. They are not the cause of the relationship. Now that we are God's work of art, we step into this masterpiece that we are and we produce good works. We're not saved because of them, but it is a natural byproduct of who we are in Christ. So we can't ignore the fact as believers that good works should validate who we are in Christ, our faith. And it's clear in Scripture that the Christian's life should be more naturally inclined to doing good, to producing good deeds because of the grace we were given at salvation. 
You and I, we were created for good works. We were created to give God glory. Now, the good we do is really not for ourselves. The good we do is really for other people. And thus, we give God glory by shining a light on his work, even in the light of others. It gives God glory. Now, what I love about Scripture is that the reason we even exist, the Bible teaches us, is not so that we get some warm fuzzy out of our life. The reason we exist isn't for some humanistic purpose that it's just for pleasure. No, the reason we exist is for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them. What's your purpose? He says, I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. God says, I've made people for my glory. So what does that mean? You were created for the glory of God. How do we live that out? If you have a purpose in life to give God glory, how, how do you live that out? Should we just all set up shop here and live in this room together? God's holy gathering place. We'll, we'll keep the air on. We got screens. I mean, that's pretty cool. We might watch some holy movies. We'll watch Courageous over and over again. Is that what that means to live for God's glory? I, I don't know. This is what Paul says. He gives us a little hint and encouragement. In 1 Corinthians, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, he's specifically addressing freedom as a believer, that we have freedom in, in what we eat and what we drink. And his point is, in whatever we choose in our eating and drinking, a specific topic that he's talking about is that our choice should give glory to God. So even in what we choose and what we eat or drink can actually bring glory to God. And he doesn't just suggest it, it's a command. Whatever you eat or drink, give God glory. So how, what does that look like practically? Listen, I need you to help me because I don't know this morning if you grabbed your coffee and were like, hey, I'm giving God glory for this right now. I do with my coffee, but I don't know if you do. And so let's just get practical for a minute. How many of you like orange juice? you like, man, I, I like orange juice, okay? Carly, you like orange juice? But you like it? You're not allergic to it, are you? Nehemiah, you like orange juice? Okay, you two, come here. <laughs> Rio, you liked orange juice, right? Come here, Rio. Yeah, brushing your teeth is, is bad right here. You, you just stay right here. I need y'all to help me this morning with the sermon. In fact, you know, sometimes you, you tune out a voice. You're like, I've heard your voice enough. Hold this for me, Rio. Thank you, thank you. So what you're going to do is you're going to teach us in a minute as a church how you, Carly, don't be so scared of the camera. Get in. Rio, come on in. Let's get y'all tight. Say hello to Facebook Live. Hello. You're missing out this morning. Now, listen, you're going to teach all of us worldwide, people in China are watching this right now. I don't know. Maybe. But you're going to teach us. They might watch it later because we'll post it. But you're going to help us understand what it looks like to glorify God by drinking orange juice. This is what do you eat or drink? Do it all for the glory of God. So you're going to teach us this, okay? So I'm going to pour you some 
And you know, some people don't like pulp. Some people love pulp. I'm a pulp guy, by the way. Yeah, it's not fiction to me. <laughs> All right, so this is low pulp. Now, do not, te- do not let the class start until I say go. So just don't do anything until I, I say let's, let's get going, okay? Okay. Whether we eat or drink, we do it all for the glory of the Lord. So you guys, just, just help us see what that looks like. On the count of three, y'all do this for God's glory. One, two, three, go. Hey, y'all let me know when you're done with the, the lesson. You just, you just tell me, are we, you, we, we've taught the class? All right, y'all give them a round of applause. Y'all can sit down. All right, we're going to unpack this a little bit, but I want to give you time. Also, find Titus chapter 2, okay? So if you brought a Bible with you, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 to, to wrap up. But I, I want us to think through this. R3, we're trying to demonstrate for us what it looks like to glorify the Lord. What, what are some things you think they did, and even if you were in the three, you can answer, that would say that was for God's glory? Okay, so Nehemiah gave thanks for his cup. Now, obviously, this is a little weird because you're like, oh, people are looking at me, and I'm standing up here, and I don't know what to do. All right, Carla, I know you felt that immensely. But Nehemiah is on to something in that regard. Let me even take it back a step further. This is in the first in our 930, people shared, and it was a real easy application of, yeah, when you have a blessing to allow someone else to partake of that. God doesn't bless you to be a hoarder. He blesses you to be a giver. That is a way you can glorify God with, with whatever you do, eat or drink, with whatever gift you have been given, whether it be orange juice or a talent or a job, salary, skill, that you can bless other people with it via sharing. But I would also say this, is that maybe you have not yet received an abundance of blessing. You can still be thankful. You can be thankful for whatever you have been given by the Lord, even if it's just a cup. That is a way to give God glory, not comparing yourself with what other people have and yet content with what the Lord's done in you. That'll preach. What else is a way they gave God glory? Yeah. You know, a way to give God glory for Carly, who in the moment missed the opportunity to share, but then recognized, and then if in the next moment she stepped in and shared, she's glorifying God. She learned from the mistake and is able then to grow as a follower of Christ. That is giving God glory. Like, God, I realize I should have. Now I want to and will step into the next moment you give me. Amen. What else? 
Yeah, that's good too. In the sense that God does give us to enjoy as well. Not only can we bless others, there are things that the Lord has made us and created us to be in a way to enjoy what we have. I think there is, uh, I think Rio and, and Heinz would probably say, you know, I, I could have, I had enough. I could have given and blessed someone else. But there is those that even had that you enjoy orange juice, how God made you, the taste buds that you have, the ability to um, enjoy God's creation is good and a gift for his children. And if you are his child and you, it's, it's like holding things loosely. If God gives you, you enjoy, you'll partake, you bless, you don't hold it like this and say, mine, mine, mine. He's like, God, if you, if you give, I rejoice. And if you take, I rejoice. You're good. You know, we could even take it a step further, not only to the taste, but just even the tree that gives the orange. And the orange that was produced and, and the, the farmer who took the fruit and then either went to a machine or to more people who then squeezed it to the packaging, to the transportation, to the refrigeration all of these things we take for granted but are really pretty cool and amazing that we even live in a time like this where those things are possible. When back in the day, it was, it was on your lander, you didn't have it. <laughs> but none of you got orange trees, I think, in your backyard. But yet we all have the opportunity to have orange juice. Really, there's a lot of ways that we can give God glory and it is by honoring him through that process. It is thanking him through that process. It's using it through the process for his glory and for the good of others. So when puzzles whether you eat or drink, we can do that. Now, I don't think many of us are thinking about that each day, are we? We're not thinking about how can I give God glory today? We just take it for granted that we have air conditioning. We just take it for granted that we have transportation. We have a roof overhead. And sometimes when you go to the third world country, then you get thankful for a season and then you come back and you get all soaked up in your, your life again and you forget about how good you got it. And so we're not contemplating, how can I give God glory today? I think one of the reasons we do that is because a lot of us, we associate giving God glory with avoiding sin. That, that's the only way we think about giving God glory is like, I didn't sin drinking the orange juice. I just drank it, Right? And so we've reduced Christianity to these thou shall nots, and that's how we've if stepped into this thinking, well, if I just avoid those sins, then everything is okay, and I've done good. But avoiding sin isn't the only way to give God glory. It isn't just the avoidance of evil. It is also the pursuit of good. In fact, I would say that Christians should be known more for our startups than our boycotts. We should be known more for what we're for than what we're against. In Titus chapter 2, Paul's writing this young minister, and some scholars even think that Paul led him into a relationship with Jesus, but he's unpacking this concept about living out our faith. In Titus 2, 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
Now, verse 11, there's this highlight that grace is how we enter the relationship of God. The verse could say, for good works of man bring salvation. It has appeared to all men. But that's not what the scripture says. We are not taught that it is our good work that brings salvation. It says grace has appeared. And who has this grace appeared to? All men. All can come to God through the death and resurrection of our Jesus Christ. Okay, faith and trust in Jesus. However, that's not the whole picture of grace. That's most of us, our understanding of grace, but grace does even more than bring salvation. Look at 12 and 13 again. It, it, that it is grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is important because we see that grace isn't gone after we put our trust in Jesus. It wasn't like you received grace and then it went bye-bye. Peace out. I'm done. My job is done here. No, grace is still very active. We need grace every day of our lives. Look what grace does. It teaches us. And really the emphasis is it doesn't just teach us. It trains us. What? To say no to ungodly things. It does help us avoid those things. Grace teaches us to live with self-control and in a godly way. So it does teach us to avoid the sin, but also teaches us how to live in a godly way. Also, grace empowers us to wait for Jesus to come back to get us. Grace does all of that. It doesn't just save you and leaves. It stays with us. It's active. It grows us. It's a grace job, not a you job. It's a grace job. And so grace doesn't go away at the moment of conversion, but it continues to teach us. And so we're still all dependent on grace. In fact, the only way to live for God's glory is through the power of grace. That's the only way you're going to do it. The only way we're going to eat and drink and give glory to God. The only way our lives are going to give glory to God is if it's through the power of grace. There's no other way. Some of us have tried on our own and we failed because we're doing it on our own. We're not leaning into grace. We think we can do it on our own instead of trusting in his power, the power of grace. Now it's important because of verse 14. Talking about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. We have a sin problem apart from Jesus and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. This is what grace does. Eager to do what is good. Paul says, as people of God, we should be eager, we should be zealous, we should be passionate about doing good, doing good works. Are we saved because of the good works? No, but because we are saved, we're eager, passionate, zealot. We're zealots, or we are zealous to do good. So my question for you, church, is are you eager to do good? Man, you want to do good passionate about it, looking for every divine opportunity and moment to shine bright for Jesus. You're looking for those opportunities to shine bright for the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before men. Don't be afraid of that, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Listen, Christianity cannot just be a big set of breaks. Avoid, stop doing stuff. There's got to be a big old gas pedal that says, let's go. Let's advance the kingdom 
of God. Let's be proactive and move the ball down the field. Let's play some offense. Let's hire Lincoln Riley and get some offense going. You know who Lincoln Riley is? He's grace. Not literally, okay? Yes, he's good for the Sooners. But in his offensive prowess, and I'm not even going to try that word again, in his geniusness of offense, that's a picture of grace. Helping us be as offensive, not offensive, but offensive as possible. But guess what? When you are offensive, you will be offensive because you're going to attract some and you're going to repel some. But that's okay. Keep shining bright. Don't worry about other people. Don't do your brightness for the glory of people. Do your brightness for the glory of God. Because when you start doing your brightness for the approval of man, you become a Pharisee. And then it's no longer about God's glory. It's about your glory. And now you've ventured off course. Grace isn't trying to set you up to be the hero. Grace is to say, you're an idiot, but God still uses you for great glory. Amen? I don't have it all together. We come up weak and need help. That's me. But God steps in and he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. But we got to start going and moving forward. One example is James, where he says, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless. Remember religion, a man-made path to God, ruins everything. He says, this is what it really should look like. This is what's pure and faultless. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Yes, we need to not be polluted by the world. We don't need to get all up in sin, but we need to do some proactive things like taking care of widows and orphans. Those are a couple big examples from God saying, take care of these helpless people. Don't think you should just go to your room and, and hole up and be a holy huddle even by yourself and do nothing thinking that's the best way to live for him. No, boredom will lead you to sin quicker than anything. No, you get out there, you move. The point is God wants to use you. He wants to use you for his glory. He wants you to be his hands and feet, his mouthpiece. He wants to use you to change the world. He doesn't have to, by the way, but he chooses to use you to advance his kingdom. You got a purpose. And so from little things like drinking orange juice to what we'd even say are bigger things like helping orphans in Kenya, you can do it for the glory of God. And he wants you to do it for his glory. And the more you handle that, the more responsibility he will give you. He'll expand your circle, but you've got to be obedient. See, grace isn't a one-time event where you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Grace calls us to action and empowers us to move. It's time to move. It's time to get going. It's time to be proactive. It's time to step out there in faith, knowing grace has got you. So would you pray with me and, and kind of just get in a moment of, even I would say a spirit of worship or a spirit of communion with God? Because what I want us to do is move into a time where we really meet with the Lord over this so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and they're going to kind of come up and get set, and I don't want that to distract you, okay? You stay in a place of, of focus 
And I'm going to ask them to lead us in, in a, a musical worship song. I say musical worship a lot because worship isn't just song. It's one of my favorite ways to do that. We're going to enter into that time. But this is to give you space to meet with God. And if that means you need to stand and sing, you stand and sing. If that means you need to get on your knees, get on your knees. If you need to make the front an altar, if you need to journal something, you have the freedom to do that in this space that we want to provide for you today. And so I'm just going to pray over you, but I want you to meet with the Lord in this moment. If you want me to pray for you at 930, we had someone give their life to Jesus in this time. And if you want to ask a question, or if you just want prayer over something, or if you want to meet with the Lord, even with someone in this room, and you need to go ask for forgiveness, or, or you want to pray with someone else, that's fine. You have freedom to do that in this moment. All right? If you want to come over and partake of communion, the Lord's Supper, we have the elements on this table. If you, you want that moment. But I want you to encounter the Lord. I don't want you just to have an experience today. I want you to have a meeting, a real encounter with God. And so I'm going to pray for that. And then when I say amen, you're just meeting with the Lord. You do what you need to do. Father, I pray for us to genuinely encounter you and meet you right now in this place. Speak to us. Teach us. Help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is Pastor John. Thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Church Podcast. For more information on us or if you happen to make a spiritual decision during this message, please let us know and go to our website, www.everyday.church. There's an email link that you can click on and we would love to hear from you. If there's anything going on that has happened during this message, if the Lord has spoken to you or you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Also, if there's a prayer request or concern, then you can email us and we would love to take the time to pray for you and respond in any way that we can. Again, thank you so much for listening. God bless.